So tonight, we're going to keep going through the book of Jeremiah. So turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah 32. And just to set the context um, for those who have been traveling with us through the book of Jeremiah, we've been looking at it going chapter by chapter, and we find ourselves tonight in chapters 32 and 33. And remember, Jeremiah is prophesying, he's speaking to Judah, which is the southern two tribes in Israel. The the northern ten have already been carried away. And, And up to this point, until chapter 30, it's been about the judgment of God that is coming upon Judah, upon the Lord's people, and the affliction that is coming. And then we get to chapter 30, and in chapters 30 through 33, there's this break from the message of affliction, the message of of judgment, the message of correction. And we see in these four chapters that the Lord gives hope. He gives hope. And so tonight, that's what we're going to be looking at. Jeremiah is sharing the truth that the Lord in love is going to correct his people, but then this hope that the Lord has sent to Jeremiah to his heart, speaking to him privately. And it reminds me in Psalm 119, verses 49 and 50, where we read, Remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction. For your word has been, or excuse me, has quickened, has given me life, which means quickened. And so we all go through those times in life, don't we? Man, the afflictions on, the troubles it seems like our 29 chapters of our life, it's just constant. And yet, isn't it like the Lord who loves us, who would take us and pull us aside and speak privately to us in his word? And it's in his word where we find hope. You'll notice, if you've been following with us last week, and, and as we will see this week, Jeremiah isn't delivered out of the circumstances. But he's given, given hope. He's given something to hold on to. And it's not just something, but it's the truth of God's word. And because it's God's word, it's just not nice words that maybe um, I can share with somebody else or that you might share, right? Feel good words. But it's, it's the word of God and there's no other word like it. It's alive. No matter what the circumstances are, no matter what I feel, it will come to pass. And that's That's our hope. That's our comfort in affliction. And so tonight, wherever you are, I pray that the Lord would quicken us, that that we would be quickened by this message of hope that we have. But just a quick breakdown of what we're going to look at. Chapter 32, if you're a note taker, you can write a title for chapter 32 can be Hope Assured. Hope Assured. And in verses 1 through 15, we see where Jeremiah Um, He buys a field, and then in verses 16 through 25, he brings his doubt to the Lord about the field. And then we see in the rest of the chapter, which is verses 26 through 44, the Lord reassures Jeremiah. So chapter 32, hope assured. Then we go to chapter 33, and here we will look at hope realized, or the materialization of hope. How does that hope come to pass? And in this chapter, we see that in verses 1 through 18, that Christ is the realization of hope. Our hope is realized in Christ. And then again, the Lord reassures Jeremiah of this hope in Christ in verses 19 through 26. 
So let's start off there in chapter 32. Let's look at hope assured. Hope assured. So starting with verse 1 in chapter 32 of Jeremiah. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king of Judah's house. So we see here, Jeremiah, the circumstances that Jeremiah is in. It's the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah. And again, we, we mentioned Judah are the two southern tribes, right? The, the northern 10 um, are referred to as Israel. So he's, he's in Jerusalem, and Zedekiah is the king there. And we see that it's the 10th year of Zedekiah. So we know from history that this would actually be 587 B.C., now, you know the significance of that. That means that within approximately one year's time, 586 BC, that's when um, Jerusalem would, and, and Judah would actually be carried away. So this is one year out from um, the Babylonians actually conquering Judah and conquering Israel. So 587 BC, that's when Jeremiah is speaking. And we see in verse 2 that we, where Jeremiah is. He's in the king's prison, and we're going to see that Zedekiah is going to actually share, the, he's going to repeat the message that Jeremiah had been sharing. Jeremiah is locked up for what he had been sharing. And notice this, the king didn't want the bad news, quote unquote, to spread among the city. Jeremiah's message is that Judah's going to fall. There's the hope for Jerusalem, the hope for God's people. Remember the Lord said that if you want to live, be taken captive. And there you will find life. Go. And, and they were to make homes. They were to plant fields in Babylon. But if you fight, the, the, you'll be killed. And so Jeremiah, that's the truth of God's word that he was sharing. But the king, not wanting that to be spread among the people, put him in prison. And now, contrary to that, the false prophets were sharing peace. All this, all this news of, of being conquered, all the news of affliction, God's correction. Ah, forget what Jeremiah is saying, right? There's peace. God won't do that. But this was not from the Lord. See, Jeremiah is a man who is willing to speak the truth in love no matter what the cost. And I wonder for us, are we willing to speak the truth in love to those around us? Now, the epitome of self-love is because I don't, I care so much about what you think about me that I, I, I'm so worried about offending you that I won't tell you the truth. And I think that it's being loving to you because I don't want to offend you, but really, I, I love myself. Love is willing to be rejected for the truth, right? And Jeremiah was rejected for the truth that he shared. Notice, who also was rejected for the truth that he shared? Christ, right? Don't, don't be afraid of man's rejection, but love as the Lord does. So look at verse 3, this is the message that Jeremiah was sharing. Zedekiah here is going to repeat it. He says, for, Ze for Zedekiah, the king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord? Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans, but surely but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak 
with him face to face and see him eye to eye. Then he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon. And there he shall be until I visit him, says the Lord. Though you fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. So notice there, the Lord says that though you fight with the Chaldeans, though you fight against Babylon, King Zedekiah, those in Judah, you will not succeed. Now, now why is this? Remember the whole context of what the Lord is doing. His people were so steeped in idolatry. They were so given into idolatry that the Lord is here correcting them. He's, he's allowing them to have their way that they would become so fed up, so sick of it as they were carried off into the, the land known for their idols in Babylon that they would say, I've had enough with that. And, and after this, they would no longer turn back to the idols. But, but the Lord's saying, you'll fight with the Chaldeans and you won't succeed because you're not actually fighting the Chaldeans. You're fighting against me. You're bucking against me. You're rebelling against me. And how often is that, you know, in our own lives? The, God, the Lord is correcting us again in love. God corrects those whom he loves. But yet I I buck against his correction instead of leaning into it. Although it, it, it still is painful, it still is hard, it's not easy, but God's doing it in love. And so they will not succeed. And I'm thankful that the Lord will not let us succeed in rebellion. Aren't you? His children, they, we can run, we can rebel, but because we are his child, we will never succeed in fighting against him. So we see also, did you notice, we know that the Lord is in control. Well, how so? In verse 3, the Lord says, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon. Notice the circumstances of life says that God is out of control. And we feel that way sometimes, right? Our circumstances are spiraling out of control. It seems like, God, where is your hand in all of this? But the Lord is using the Babylonians to accomplish his purpose. And it is the Lord who ultimately gave his people over. Do you know that the Lord is in control in your life? That he is still king? Right, Satan has the title deed to this earth now. We live in a fallen world. But he, Satan, is subject to the Lord. God is still in control. Now, keep going on here. It, it seems so odd. Why does the Lord tell Jeremiah to buy a field? Like, it's out of nowhere. It's so random. He says in verse 6, And, and Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Notice again, do you see how much it's the word of the Lord coming? It's the word of the Lord that's encouraging Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah's giving himself to, to the word. But anyways, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, Buy my field, which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, so this is Jeremiah's cousin, came to me in the court of prison according to the word of the Lord. And he said to me, Please buy the field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours. 
and the redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So all of this, this, this picture, this um, act of buying a field is the Lord um, using Jeremiah's an, an event in his life to accomplish his purpose in that he, he's, he's using this in Jeremiah personally. You're going to buy a field, Jeremiah, now because later I will bring you back. And, and we're going to talk about that. But he's, he's showing him hope assured even in this field. Notice that as we go through this, Jeremiah obeyed the Lord. Even when we feel hopeless, even when our circumstances are quote-unquote spiraling out of control, we still have his word which we can obey. And that's a steady, you know, do you ever get in those places? Man, I think about, um, just because I was talking to some of my friends today about hunting, when you go out and, and, and you go to hunt, it's, you know, 5.30 in the morning and it's pitch black. And sometimes you can barely see uh, like three feet in front of you. But I, I, I know where I have to go, right? I have this, I, I know the landmark, I, I know that I'm going there, and I'm just going to set, just set my track right there. And that's what we can do. In even t- times of confusion, times of hurt, we still stay obedient to God's word. When I don't know what to do, just fall back on what you do know. What God's told you in his word. Jeremiah does that. But notice he says the word of the Lord came to him. We're not, we're not exactly told how the Lord spoke to Jeremiah. Was it an impression on his heart? I, I don't know. Was it, was it through a friend? We're not told. I, I like, though, maybe it was like Psalm 32, 8 says, that the Lord says there that he will guide you even with his eye. But the point being is that Jeremiah was always listening and looking for the, word, the Lord to speak to him, Right? And, and do I expect the Lord to speak to me? Do I expect him to, to literally guide me with his eye like he promises to? Well, what do you mean by that? Think about it. Who's maybe a close friend, a, a spouse, a child, whoever it is, you can just give the look, right? You give the look, and you know exactly you're sending a message. Sometimes that look is louder than words. And, and that's the Lord, right? Because there's that intimate relationship that we have with him, that we can experience, that impression that he gives to us. But it's always validated by his word. But notice this. When did Jeremiah know without a doubt that it was the Lord who maybe was guiding him with the eye, that impression on his heart? I don't know. But it wasn't until verse 8 at the end, it says that, then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Well, when is that? When the circumstances around Jeremiah aligned with the impression or, or the guiding of his eye, whatever it was that the Lord was speaking to him. So you notice, Jeremiah had this impression, but he waited upon the Lord to bring it to pass. And, and, and indeed, his cousin did come to him and say, buy this land. So God aligned circumstances with the impression, the word that he had already given to Jeremiah. And he will do the same for us. But do you see here that Jeremiah, he had the right of redemption to the land? We'll come back to that. But let's keep going. Verse 9. Hold on to the right of redemption. That's important. So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, who was in Anathoth. 
and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver. And I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses, and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open. And I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, son of Neri, son of Messiah, Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deeds before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. Then I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this purchase deed and the sealed, and this deed which is open, and put them in the earthen vessels that they may last many days. For thus says the Lord of hosts, God, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall yet be possessed in this land. So we see here Jeremiah, again in obedience, he buys the field. Now why could he buy the field? Well, we, we were told earlier that Hanamel, his cousin, came to him and he said, Jeremiah, you can buy this field because you have the right of redemption. Well, you remember earlier in Leviticus 25 that the Lord established the concept in, in the law of a kinsman redeemer, the right of redemption. Whenever um, somebody, a person, became in trouble in terms, maybe they were sold, or they, became, they fell into debt and, and they had to be sold into slavery, or, or you, your family falls into debt and you have to sell your land um, to somebody else to help pay off of that, a kinsman redeemer can come and, and they can buy back that, that land. They, they can come and purchase it. God is doing this to, um, for his law to keep the, um, the land within the different families. But he establishes this. And, and the kinsman redeemer, right, Jeremiah, he wasn't obliged. He didn't have to purchase this. So we know a few things then about a kinsman redeemer. One of the most famous accounts in, this, in the Bible is the story of Ruth, right, and Boaz. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. But the kinsman redeemer, number one, had to be willing to do it. They had to be willing to redeem. Secondly, the kinsman redeemer had to be able to redeem. And in essence, they had to be able to pay the price. They had to have the sufficiency to be able to do it, to purchase it, to pay it. And then also, we know that they had to be of the right lineage, right? They had to be in the family. And so Jeremiah, all of these, he was willing, he was able, and he was of the family of um, Anathoth. And so he uh, redeemed the land. He purchased it. Now think about this. What do you know about the field? Well, let me tell you something. If I was Jeremiah, and somebody came to me, and they said, do you want to buy this field? Well, I'd think about it for a second. I'd say, well... Where's the field again? Well, it's in Anathoth. Where's Anathoth? It's in enemy territory. It's outside of the city of Jerusalem. So this field, from Jeremiah's perspective, it, it was an enemy land. It was conquered. Notice, think about this. If the Canadians came and they, and they came and they took over uh, Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, and, and somebody said, hey, I'll sell you this land, why would we purchase it, Right? It does mean no good. It's under Canadian rule right now. So Jeremiah, for him, there was no material gain, right? He wasn't doing this like I would 
trying to get the best deal, a conniving man. How can I get this for the cheapest price? Is it in the best location? What's my return on investment? That's what I would be thinking. But the Lord told him to do something um, for an eternal or a long-term value. Notice that. He was acting in faith that the Lord would fulfill his promise in bringing the people back. Because right now the land was an enemy territory. Not only that, but notice the price of the field, 17 shekels of silver. Then we're told in verses 10 through 12 that there are two identical deeds given. One, and it, they were both signed by the witnesses, and, and the one deed was given, and, and it's open so people could look at it. They could see, oh, this is in fact everything um, that, you know, the whole, all the details of the transactions. And then one was sealed, one was closed, and it had an official still, seal on it. And that would be because they didn't have computer records, they didn't have the court systems that, like, we do today. But this seal would, was put, the seal deed was put in a, a jar, and it was to be preserved. So then when Jeremiah came back, he could take the sealed one, and he could say, look, it's exactly the same as this open one. I indeed purchased the land, and, and the land is mine. So Jeremiah did this out of acting in faith, knowing, again, because this is an act, he's physically performing this, but it's according to God's word that he will indeed fulfill his promise and bring his people back, right? Hope for the future. Now, how does this, what does this all mean for you and I tonight? Well, notice that Jeremiah, in his act of buying a field, is a picture of Christ. We know this because in Matthew 13, verses 44 through 45, there we read, and again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. And for us, that pearl of great price is you, is me. And Christ gave his all to buy you and me, to buy the field, right? That he might have us. The field was under the control of enemy when Jeremiah bought it. Christ, when he came, he came and he subjected himself. He lived under the law, right? That he might redeem us out of the law. Not only that, but we talked about the concept of redemption and, and the different aspects of a kinsman redeemer. Number one, we said that they had to be willing. Remember Jesus, no one took his life, but he willingly laid it down for you. He was willing to redeem you and I. Secondly, he, would, he would, had the sufficiency to do it. Well, what do we mean by that? See, we are indebted to our sin. Our sin, we have a debt that we could never pay. But Christ, the sinless Son of God, the perfect Lamb, without blemish, He paid that price for us. He bore our sins upon Himself that we could be purchased back out of slavery of sin. Not only that, we see in Ephesians 1, 7, it says that you have been redeemed, not just with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, in first, um, oh, I'm sorry, that's First Peter 1, um, 18 and 19. It's Ephesians 1, 7, where it says that we have redemption through his blood. Now, we mentioned that the purchase price of the field that Jeremiah bought was how many shekels of silver? 17. And it's pretty cool. If you go and, and you do a little bit of research, there's um, some neat passages about the significance of 17 in the Bible. But we know that 17 
excuse me, that, not 17, that the um, silver in the Bible was always a picture of redemption. Purchasing back for its intended purpose. Well, not only that, but 17 is a, is a picture of complete victory over, over the enemy. A couple examples of that, we know God overcame the sin of rebellious humans when he began to flood the earth through rain, and it's on the 17th, it's on the 17th of the second Hebrew month. That, that, um, Noah's, we also know that Noah's ark and its eight passengers rested on the mountains of Ararat on the 17th day of the month. And then just one more for... for um, Tonight, Jesus Christ gained a complete victory over death in the grave when God resurrected um, him near, the, near sunset on Nisan 17, which is Saturday, April, 8th, or April 30th AD. So do you see all this? 17, complete victory. Finally, we have these sealed deeds. And what's up with that? See, the deed was sealed. The deed was sealed to prove it's authenticity. Do you know that the Bible says that you have been sealed and that I have been sealed? Well, in Ephesians 1.13, it says, In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And so for you and I, right, this, this hope, we talk about hope, right? Again, we might not be delivered from our, our current difficult circumstances. The heartbreak may still be there. But you can be assured that God's word will be fulfilled. That one day, you and I, we will be delivered from this fallen world and that we will be in glory, free from the presence of sin with our Savior again. You're sealed. It's a shore for you and I today. And so this picture for us, our assurance is based in Christ. So keep going on in verse 16. Now, in all of this, Jeremiah does this, but then he goes back to the Lord. And, and I'm thankful for this example because we're going to see Jeremiah has doubts. Man, in verses 16 through 25, the, these doubts arise in his heart, but he takes them to the Lord. And G. Campbell Morgan says this. He says, Jeremiah is perpetually trembled in the presence of God in view of his ministry, but he never trembled in the presence of man. Jeremiah always took his difficulty back to the Lord, and he dealt with it there. And so where do I go with my difficulties, with my questions in life? Am I going to the Lord or am I going to man? But nevertheless, verse 16, now when I had delivered the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neri, I prayed to the Lord saying, ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, in your outstretched arm, there is nothing too hard for you. You show loving kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, you are great in counsel and mighty in works, for your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. So notice here, we see in verses 17 through 19, Jeremiah begins as he goes to the Lord in prayer, but he's simply restating or he's reminding himself, he's praying about the attributes of God, the character of God. And that's always a good thing to do. It's a great thing to do, in fact. Remind yourself of who God is. 
Let that truth permeate our hearts and our minds. Fall back on what you know about God. See, we have the rest of the book. We know what happens, but Jeremiah didn't. But he could fall back. and He could hold on to who God was. And the Bible tells us this in Psalm 91, 14. There the Lord says, I will set him on high because he has known my name. See, the Lord promises as we know who he is, as we know his character, as we know his attributes, he will set us on high. That's a great high to have, isn't it? The high that the Lord gives us. See, I, I can then navigate the circumstances of life. I'm not necessarily delivered out of them, right? But I'm set above them. We're set above them. Because as we look at God, who God is, you see, our circumstances don't define who God is. Sometimes we fall into that trap, right? Well, God is not good because my circumstances are not good. And I wrestle with that. I'm not making, I'm not picking on anybody. I, I'm not making fun. That, that's something that I struggle with, right? If everything go, is going that well, or excuse me, if, if things aren't going well in my life, then how can God be good? But we need to define our circumstances by who God is. And that's important, why we're to be in the word of God. And see, as I look and as you look to who the Lord is, then our circumstances start to make sense, right? They don't change. Then, they might not change, but then we can have a peace that comes not from understanding, the Bible says. I don't give you a peace from understanding what's going on, but I will give you a peace that surpasses understanding, Philippians says. So go and study the attributes of God. Remind yourself of who he is. Now keep going in verse 20. We see there, Jeremiah says, You have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt to this day, and in Israel among other men. And you have made yourself a name as it is this day, and you have brought your people, Israel, out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, and with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. And with great terror, verse 22, you have given them this land which you swore to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and they took possession of it, but they have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. They have done nothing of all that you have commanded them to do. Therefore, you have caused all of this calamity to fall, or excuse me, to, to come upon them. So we see here that Jeremiah first reminded, him, him, reminded himself of who God was, his attributes, but now Jeremiah reminds himself of what God has done in the past. And so a great practice for you and, and for me is just to journal, man. Just write down one or two sentences. What, God, what, what did God do in your life today? You'd be surprised. And see, as I remind myself of God's um, past deliverances, it encourages me in the future. I know that he was able to do in the past. He was willing. He was faithful. I know then why he doesn't change. He will therefore do it again in the future. You say, well, mate, man, I'm 20 years old and I forgot to journal and I don't have that to look back on. Well, that's okay. Guess what? God's given us a journal of his own past doings. Go back and, and remind yourself of what he's done in his word. Encourage yourself. Reflect upon it. But he keeps going in verse 24. He says, look, the siege mounds 
They have come to the city to take it, and the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword and the famine and the pestilence. What you have spoken has happened. Notice Jeremiah says there, Lord, all that you said in terms of the affliction, the correction, the the Babylonians, Lord, you have said that this was going to happen. Jeremiah says it it has happened, happened. He's reminding himself that God's word was fulfilled. Therefore, you see it, verse 25, and you have said to me, O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witnesses, yet the city has been given into the hands of the Chaldeans. Do you see what he's saying? Lord, this is hopeless. The siege mounds are there. They're about, I'm about to be taken away. We're about to be conquered, and you told me to buy this land. So the Lord here is, gives us hope assured. Look what he does, and starting with verse 26. He says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Notice that the Lord is repeating what Jeremiah had already prayed in verse 17. Did you see that? If you flip back over to verse 17, Jeremiah said, Lord, is there anything too hard for you? And, and the Lord's saying, you're right, Jeremiah. You're passing the test. Man, you were praying right on. There's nothing too hard for me. So hold on to that. Know that. But you say, well, that's true for Jeremiah. But is that true for me? That's true maybe in that person's circumstances or in life. Man, maybe you might even be saying, just being honest, right? That's true for you, Xander. Like, I mean, you're up there preaching. But with the word, and by the way, I'm no better than anybody else. But, but we tend to think that, right? And the question maybe might not even be, is the Lord able? We know that the Lord is able, but maybe we're like the leprous man in Matthew who said, are you willing? And maybe we struggle with the willingness of God. But isn't it sweet, if you go and, and if you look, and I, I think it's in Matthew 8, I, I can't remember for sure, uh, but it's, in, it's definitely in Matthew, the leper said, Lord, if you're willing, touch me and heal me. And you know what the next verse says? That Jesus, he reached out and he touched him, and he was made whole. And maybe even for us, right, we find ourselves like, like God's people, we're in correction, man, for some sin that's been in our life. Maybe it's not because of sin. Maybe it's just the circumstances of living in a fallen world. And, and we have hurts and we have heartaches. And, and Lord, I know that you're able to, but are you willing even today? Well, we can bring, our, our, we can bring it to the Lord and, and, and he's willing, man. There's nothing too difficult for him. So he, he says there, the Lord, he goes on. He says, is there anything, anything too hard? I was speaking Jamaican there. Is there anything, is there anything too hard for me? Verse 28, therefore, thus says the Lord. Thank you, Jared. Matthew 8. Appreciate it, bro. Uh, Is there anything, excuse me, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will give this city into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. Again, we see who's in control? The Lord. I will give it. Verse 29, and the Chaldeans who fight against this city shall come and set fire to this city. And burn it with the houses on whose roof they have offered incense to Baal, 
And they poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger because the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth. For the children of Israel have provoked me only to anger from, with the works of their hands, says the Lord. Verse 31, for this city shall, has been to me a provocation of my anger and my fury from the day that I've built it even to this day. So I will remove it from before my face. Verse 33, excuse me, 32. Because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, and they, their kings and their princes, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they have turned their back excuse me, turned to me the back and not the face. Though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not listened to receive instruction. But they set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through fire to Moloch, which I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind that that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city, which you say, it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by the famine, by the pestilence. Verse 37, behold, notice this is what the Lord says he will do, hope assured, I will gather them out of all the countries where I have driven them in my anger and in my fury. And in the great wrath, I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts, so that they will not depart from me. Verse 41, yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. So how sweet is it to see that in all of this, Jeremiah brings his his troubled heart, he prays to the Lord, and the Lord answers him. Did you notice that? Jeremiah went to the Lord, and the Lord answered him. And maybe even tonight, you've been praying, and you've been calling out to the Lord, and the Lord, I just pray that he would meet you tonight. That even this word would be an answer to the troubles that are going on. So, we see here, one thing that we learn from the life of Jeremiah, again, as the great preacher G. Campbell Morgan puts it, He says, I cannot have my deepest questions answered by any man. No priest, preacher, prophet, or lawyer, that's a joke, can bring to stormed, tossed souls God's answer. I can but say to you, give God a chance to speak to you. Are you willing to give God a chance to speak to you? But sometimes I'm, I'm afraid to hear what he might say. I'm afraid that he might say, I'm not going to deliver you out of the circumstances, but I'll be with you through the circumstances. And sometimes I don't want to go to the Lord because I don't want to hear that. But we can run to all the algorithms, all the Google searches, the Facebook feeds, the Instagrams, 
to answer our heartaches. We can run to we can run to what the world has to offer. I can run to friends. I can run to work, whatever it may be, for an answer. But no one, you'll never find an answer like the one who knows your heart, like the one who has formed your heart. And that sweet consolation, that sweet comfort that it just comes from hearing a word of the Lord. Now notice, we see here that the Lord's, he, he repeated the state of Judah in verses 29 through 35, how, how, how steep into idolatry that they've fallen. Um, they've actually set up um, idols in the temple. They're offering children um, to killing their children in uh, worship to Moloch. So they've fallen deeply. They've turned their back, verse 33, to the Lord. And notice, though, in spite of all of that, the Lord doesn't say, I'm done with you, but for this time, I will let you be carried away again out of correction, but I will bring you back. He reassures them in verses 36 there, and all the way down through 44, this reassurance of restoration. But notice, we left off in verse 42. He says, for thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. The Lord says, I have, done, I have kept my word in the past. I've been faithful. Jeremiah, I won't change now. I will be faithful to bring the good as well. In verse 43, in the fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is desolate, without man or without beast, and it will be given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money, sign deeds and seal them and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin and in the place, places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah and in the cities of the mountains and the cities of the lowlands and the cities of the south. For I will cause the captives to return, says the Lord. Notice here how it focuses on what the Lord will do. The Lord doesn't say, Israel, when Judah, when you clean up your act, but it's based on what God will do. And isn't that where our hope is? It's on what God will do, right? On what Christ has done. Not on our works. And as long as our hope, as long if we still think, if we still fall under morality or we still fall under legalism, thinking that we have to prove ourselves worthy or acceptable to God, then our hope will never be sure. Because I can never do it. But as long as your hope is founded in the finished work of Christ, it's assured. It's not based on, on us, it's, but it's based on the new covenant, which is found in Christ. And we see that hope assured, chapter 32, but now hope realized. And we see that Christ is the realization as we keep going on here. How could all of this come to pass? Jeremiah can say, man, He's looking at the people, and it's like, it would be like us going out to play the Steelers in a football game. Man, we have no chance. I'm sorry. We, I just don't stand a chance at all. But see, hope realized is, is, is Christ. And he gives this incredible, incredible promise of restoration, and it's all found in Christ. So verse 1, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time. While he was still shut up in the court of the prison, again, his circumstance didn't change. Saying, thus says the Lord who made it, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. He says in verse 3, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty 
or that word means inaccessible, wondrous things which you do not know. So the word invites there Jeremiah to continue to call out to him. And God, he invites us to call. Man, call upon him. He wants to talk with you. He wants to commune with you. Now verse 4, he says, For thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the house of this city and the houses of the king of Judah, which I have which have been pulled down to fortify against the siege mounds with, and the sword. They come to fight with the Chaldeans, but only to fill their places with dead bodies of men whom I will slay in my anger and my fury for all, the, for all whose wickedness I've hidden from the face, excuse me, hidden my face from this city. So notice here, that again, the word affirms in verses 4 and 5 that destruction, that death is coming. But isn't that what the Lord does? He has to tear down, he has to uproot that he can bring the new. You know, we had a funny example of this in our house um, the past couple, over the past couple years. When we bought our, our house that we're living in now, um, we ripped up the carpet and, and underneath the hardwood floor had some termite damage. So it was all eaten and pretty nasty, and we had to replace it. And my wife, Olivia, she didn't grow up with any house projects at all. Um, you know, maybe, maybe a light bulb being changed here and there, but that's about it. And I grew up, man, my dad's jacking up houses, making the basements taller, and, and, and all this crazy stuff that he, he knows how to do. So anyways, one morning I tell her, like, hey, we're gonna, my dad's coming over. We're going to replace the floor so we could put new floor down, right? We couldn't put the, the, the brand new floor that we just bought that, that's— that's sturdy, that we won't fall through whenever somebody walks on it without taking the new stuff off. So anyways, my, we, it's like seven in the morning. My dad and I start, we're ripping up all the termite eaten floor and Olivia wakes up and she comes down the stairs and she just looks <laughs> and I'll never forget. She's at the top of the stairs and she can see through our floor all the way down to the basement and she just, she doesn't freak out like saying anything, but she freaks out. She just gets this look and she just, she didn't even say anything. She just turned up and went back upstairs and later she's like, I can't believe there's a hole in our floor. I'm like, well, that's what you got to do, right? But the Lord's the same with us. Man, I want to be healed like Beck was praying this morning. That sin in my life or that, that, that idol, whatever it is, I, I, Lord, I, I want to overcome that. Well, sometimes the Lord has to uproot some things. And he has to let some things die in our life that he can bring new. Notice too, isn't that what happened when, when you were saved? The Bible says that, that you have been buried with him in his death. See, your old you, the old man dies, that he can bring the new, that we can be raised to new life in Christ. Hope realized in Christ. So verse six, he keeps going. He says, behold, the word is saying, I will bring notice health and healing. And I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. And I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return and will rebuild the places as at the first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities which they have sinned and, and by which they have transgressed against me. And so we see here, in, and now in verses 6 through 8, the word says that he will forgive and that he will heal. And, and I love this. The word, doesn't, the word says that he will cleanse them from how much of their iniquity? All. 
that he will cleanse them and that he will pardon them from how much, how many of their iniquities? All. No longer Israel, no longer God's people is it just a covering of sin, but, but the word says that in this new covenant that I am making with you, a covenant of blood, the covenant of grace that is in Jesus Christ, that your, your sins, your iniquities, your transgressions are not covered. It's not, they're not just temporarily covered. They're forgiven and they're dealt with. And they're dealt with righteously, which means you don't have to worry about them coming back up again. Do you ever think about that? God has dealt, he's just. So he has fully paid the price for them in Christ. You don't have to worry about them anymore. They've all been dealt with. In verse 9 then, he continues and he says, and, and then it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and an honor before all the nations of the earth who shall hear all the good that I do to them and they shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that I provide for it. Thus says the Lord again, there shall be heard in this place of which you say it is desolate without man and without beast in the cities of Judah in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitants and without beast the voice of joy and the voice of gladness the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride the voice of those who will say praise the Lord of hosts for the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever and of those who will bring the sacrifices of praise into the house of the Lord for I will cause the captives, captives of the land to return, as at first says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 12, In this place which is desolate, without man and without beast, and in all its cities, there shall again be a dwelling place of the shepherds, causing their flocks to lie down in the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowlands, in the cities of the south, in the land of Benjamin, in the places round about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, the flock shall again pass under the hand of him who counts them, says the Lord. And so we see here, the Lord's, again, the results of this restoration that's promised, that, there, that the nations no longer will, will fear and tremble because of the destruction and the judgment that God brings upon his people. But now when God fulfills his word and in bringing them back, the Lord says that the nations are going to fear and tremble because of the greatness of what he's done in that. And notice, they will praise the Lord. Now, isn't that what happened to you and I? That when in Christ, that we've been saved, that you've been, you died with him, you've been raised to new life. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. See, our salvation is for his glory because it's all his works. And as long as, you know, in my heart, I, I, when, in my heart, when I want to say I have something to do with it, you know what happens in that moment? My hope is shattered. <laughs> but as long as it's, it's, it's based completely and my heart doesn't go back into legalism and it rests in the gospel of Christ, hope assured for his glory. But in verse 14, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days, notice, and at that time, he says, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called 
the Lord our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, verse 17, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor shall the priests and the Levites lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings, and to sacrifice continually. So we see here that Christ will bring this to pass. Hope realized is found in Christ. And we see that it's the fulfillment of the Lord's covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we talked about that last week, the Davidic covenant. And he says, this is the name by which she will be called. And so here the Lord is referring to the city of Jerusalem. And the name by which she will be called is the Lord, our righteousness. Now, if you remember back in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, the Lord said the same thing. Now, there, though, he said that now this is his name which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. Here, he's saying that, and this is the name by which she will be called, speaking of Jerusalem. Now, why is that? Well, you know that Christ is the righteous one, right? He is the branch of David that will, that will um, come. And he's the righteousness of God. But notice, he is the righteous one, and he's the one who will reign in Jerusalem. And therefore, the king ascribes righteousness to those who are in his kingdom. Right? And that's why his city, that those who are in Jerusalem that are in his kingdom under his reign are declared righteous. And isn't that what the Lord does? You see, when you were saved, the Bible says that you have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, that we were under the reign, that we were under the rule of sin in our lives. And now you and I, we, were un- we are now under the reign of grace. And now you are declared righteous, not because of what we've done, but we're simply we're simply in the family, right? We're under the king. And now he ascribes his righteousness to you. And do you know what that means? Do you know what righteousness means? That you are in a right standing with God, right? Salvitically for my salvation. But do you also know that, you know, when you're in Christ now, righteousness also means that you've been, a, you're approved of. That you're, you no longer have to look for acceptance Man, my heart wants to look for it everywhere else. But if, you, if you're in Christ, you have all the acceptance you ever need. The king accepts you. The one who loves you. You're made acceptable. You don't have to strive to keep it. You don't have to please people to keep it. You don't have to look a certain way. But it's by the grace of God. He's given you his righteousness. And again, this covenant, not dependent upon us, not dependent upon Israel, but it's upon, dependent upon the Lord. And so we see that the, the realization of this hope is fulfilled in Christ. Now, the God here at the end, he reassures Jeremiah once more of this covenant. In verse 19, he says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and, w- and my covenant with the night so that there will not be day and night in their season, 
Then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And with the Levites and the priests, my ministers, as the host of heavens cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who ministered to me. You know what? Think about this. I can almost guarantee that none of you worried about whether the sun was going to rise this morning or not. You didn't go to bed worrying, will the sun come up tomorrow? Nope, you didn't. You ever think about that? You don't worry about if the sun's going to set in the, in the nighttime, the stars and the moon are going to come tonight. It's already happened, right? But do you ever think about that? See, the Lord's saying that this covenant, the covenant that is of my blood, pointing to Jesus, right? This new covenant of, of Christ's blood, the covenant of grace, you can be so sure that God will keep his covenant that if any man, no, the idea is that no one can stop the sun and the moon and this, right, from rising and setting. So no one can stop, nothing can stop God's covenant of grace, the new covenant that is in him. And you see, that means that I can't stop it because I falter. I, I sin daily, ask my wife, right? We sin, we can't, we can't alter it. Because it's based on the finished work of Christ. And, the, and the, the Lord's saying here, man, that's where assurance is. I like Philip Ryken. He says this. He says, God placed the sun and the moon on the bargaining table. He offered the heavenly bodies as a security deposit for his covenant promise. If God ever fails to provide an eternal king or a, or a permanent priest, then the sun and the moon will be yours to keep. Isn't that sweet? Does that change now the way that you're going to look at the sunrise and the sunset? Man, now every time you see that, you can say, I'm so thankful. I'm so secure in, in, in what Christ has done for me. Let that be your daily reminder to us. But did you notice, keep going in verse 23, he says, Moreover, the word of the, of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not considered what these people have spoken, saying the two families which the Lord has chosen? He has also cast them off. Thus, they have despised my people as if they should no more be a nation before them. These two families are, are the, um, the southern tribes of Judah and the northern ten of Israel. And what he's saying here is that those who say that God has despised, or in other words, are done with, done away with, Israel and Judah, the Lord's saying they have sinned. Because there's those who teach that God is done with Israel the Lord's saying here that despising them is sin. Straight up. David Guzik says this, In the new covenant, the purpose of God extends far beyond Israel, but never forsakes Israel. Those who say God has cast them off and that he is finished with them as a nation commit the great sin of despising his people. God's, we're talking about this, right? This hope, realize the hope assured for us. But again, as we've, we're looking at, it's also... God is not done with Israel. He's not done with them. And if you want to look more at that, um, go back and listen to last week's tape. But let's finish it out here, verse 25. Thus says the Lord, If my covenant is not with the day and the night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, 
servant so that they shall not take any of his, dis- oh, excuse me, let me start over again in verse 25. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant is not with a day and the night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will cause their captives to return, and I will have mercy on them. And so we come to the end of the hope chapters. But just because we're at the end of, of, of those chapters in Jeremiah doesn't mean that our hope has ended. And we opened looking and reading um, in the Psalms that uh, revive me according to your word. Lord, my, hope, my heart takes um, hope or finds hope in your word. It's the word of God that came to Jeremiah, right? That reassured him and that was his source of hope, his encouragement and difficulty and, and in affliction. And I don't know where you are tonight. Maybe there's affliction that's present in your life. Maybe there's hardship. Maybe there's hardship to come. We all, we live in the same fallen world. But hope is found in the word of God. And, and hope is found not that our circumstances may change, but that ultimately we will be delivered from this fallen world. Because for those of us who are in Christ, you can be so sure that you can know without a shadow of a doubt that in the twinkling of an eye, right, when we take our last breath here on earth, that we will be in the presence of God. There's, where there's, we will be glorified, which means that we will do, be delivered from the presence of sin. And you see, that's hope, folks. That's true hope. And tonight, may, may, maybe um, you don't know that hope. That's not a reality for you. Come and talk to us. We, we, we want you to leave here knowing that. If you need encouragement, if you need prayer, um, just talk to somebody. Ask them to pray with you. Man, don't be too prideful to ask for prayer. God gives grace to the humble. And so, Lord, we do come tonight, and God, we know that you see, we know that you have heard, Lord, even the prayers on the way here tonight, Lord, the prayers over this past week, Lord, of heartache, Lord, of, of maybe fear, of anxieties, of worry, Lord, but we thank you, God, and we trust that even tonight that you did, Lord, um, do what you promised to do. Lord, you gave revival, Lord, to hearts that are, that, man, just feel dead or dry, or that are hurting. And Lord, we just pray tonight that, our, that, that as, as we go forth, Lord, that we would um, remember the surety of your promise, Lord, that Day by day, as we look at the moon and and the sun and their faithfulness, Lord, we will remember your faithfulness to us. That for those who are in Christ, Lord, we are so sure, we can be so sure that we will one day be delivered from this hurt and this fallen world and for eternity be with you. And I thank you for that. So Lord, let our lives be a testimony to that. And may we not be ashamed like Jeremiah to share the truth of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who are hurting around us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.